Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, featuring Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. My name is Robin Hoffman. I'm a Senior Compliance and Credentialing Manager in Barry Dunn's Healthcare Practice Group. I'm pleased to be joined for this episode by one of my colleagues from Barry Dunn, Manager Natalie Lahman. And we are very honored to be joined by a guest for today's podcast, Dr. Ron Bosch, who is the Director of Compliance and Risk Management at Community Healthcare, Inc., which is a federally qualified health center in Iowa. The title of our podcast is Complying with Federal Requirements that Prohibit Discrimination on the Basis of Disability. The concept for this podcast came from a recent voluntary resolution agreement that the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights entered into with a healthcare organization to resolve a disability discrimination complaint. Protections against disability discrimination in healthcare are based on Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, as well as Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. But before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations that engage Barry Dunn for compliance and other services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for any government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. Now it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Natalie Lahman, and I wanted to let our listeners know that prior to joining Barry Dunn, you worked in compliance and revenue integrity roles in hospitals, health systems, and medical practice group settings. And while you were working for a major health system in Connecticut, you were responsible for managing a project that focused on meeting the needs of patients who require access to auxiliary aids and services. And don't worry for our listeners, I'm going to let you know what that term means in just a few minutes. How fortunate we are to have you with us here today, Natalie, to share your observations based on that experience. Might you please inform our listeners about the types of services that you provide to Barry Dunn's clients? Thank you, Robin. We work with a range of healthcare providers, assisting with clinical documentation, coding, and billing. We perform clinical documentation reviews and provide education. We also perform documentation reviews as an IRO for organizations under corporate integrity agreements. And I'm excited to be talking to you today about this topic. Thanks so much. And now I'll say it's our collective pleasure to introduce our guest presenter, Dr. Ron Bosch. 
Ron is the Director of Compliance and Risk Management at a federally qualified health center in Iowa. Ron, when we talked offline about the development of this podcast, I was so thrilled that you agreed to join us for today. You bring a wealth of clinical background and academic experience to your role as Director of Compliance and Risk Management. I'm wondering if you might share with our listeners how your clinical background helps to inform your work in healthcare compliance. Ron? Well, Robin, well, thank you for the invite to be here today. It's a pleasure. I look forward to speaking on some of these topics, but let's give a little bit of a background of my past. I have 30 plus years of clinical experience, doctor of chiropractic, kind of interesting to say the least, but the last 15 years of it, before I started as the director of compliance, I was also a dean, executive dean of clinics for a local chiropractic college that had campuses here, Florida, and California. We had clinics in over three states, plus it was an education. So I dealt a lot with the Department of Education and American Disabilities Act uh, for them, along with developing the actual compliance program for the college for its clinical education, which I was overseeing. And then being able to retire and start a whole new career in, in compliance. Here's to that next stage of life, Ron. So glad that your expertise is being used so beautifully in Iowa. Natalie, when we talked um, about the voluntary resolution agreement that the HHS Office for Civil Rights entered into and posted on its website in May, we saw that there were some rather unique aspects to that complaint of disability discrimination. First, the issue arose in an ambulatory care setting. And traditionally in the past, when you look at the OCR site, usually these types of complaints have been from patients who are at inpatient institutions or in emergency departments. Secondly, the uh, OCR's complaint that they posted in May of this year was made by a patient's spouse, not by the patient. So I promised our listeners I would give you a little, um, if you will, regulatory ease about the definition of auxiliary aids and services. So going back to the jolly old Code of Federal Regulations, Section 35.104, they define qualified interpreters as on-site or through video remote interpreting services also included are note takers, real-time computer-aided transcription services, written materials, exchange of written notes, telephone handset amplifiers, assistive listening devices, assistive listening systems, telephones that are compatible with hearing aids, closed caption decoders, open and closed captioning, including real-time captioning, voice, text, and video-based telecommunications products and systems, including what we know as TTY telephones, video phones, and captured, captioned telephones, or equally effective telecommunication devices. So as you can see, there's several multiple pathways that one can go down to meet the spirit of these regulations. So as we looked at this voluntary resolution agreement that the OCR posted on its website this May, 
it was rather unique in that it was the patient's spouse, the patient's spouse who is deaf and uses American Sign Language as her primary means of communication. She filed a complaint with the OCR alleging that the healthcare organization did not provide appropriate auxiliary aids and services when necessary to allow her effective communication during her spouse's medical appointment when she accompanied her husband to see the clinician. The patient's spouse alleged to the Office for Civil Rights that she provides care to her husband when he is sick, and she wanted to be part of his appointment with a cardiology practice following his hospital discharge. The spouse also alleged that the healthcare organization previously provided her with American Sign Language interpreters at her request when she herself was a patient of the organization. But the organization denied her request for ASL when she was coming with her spouse to his medical appointment. So, Natalie, we had a we had a long conversation about this one when we talked about it um, when it came out in May. And you talked with me about the kind of work that you had done with a major health system to assure that patients in need of auxiliary aids and services would get those services in a timely manner. And I was so impressed when you talked about all of the work that you did. And I'm wondering if you can describe for our listeners, what were some of the key components of that initiative? Thanks. That was a huge project that required assistance from all departments. Um, the key components uh, were to identify first the first points of contact for patients when they enter the facility. And second was to create a script or a standard set of questions for staff members to ask the patient if they require accommodations. The third is to ensure that all areas have the appropriate resources to fulfill these requests. And then finally, the hospital staff needed to be able to document all of the requested accommodations and that they were actually provided to the patient in the medical record. Examples of these resources, as you said, included ASL interpreters, amplifiers for those hard of hearing, or large print documents to be able to read all of the paperwork that's being handed to you at registration. So we think about the emergency departments, radiology, laboratories, physical therapy, et cetera. There's so many different areas that are required to be able to provide these accommodations to patients and their family members, not just in the inpatient setting. Absolutely. And and with a with a project of that scope, Natalie, I'm wondering, were there any what I call unanticipated road bumps in bringing that project to fruition? If there were road bumps, can you describe how these were resolved? Sure. I think one of the areas that sticks out to me was identifying all the different staff members who needed to be trained on this process. So besides the first point of contact, the thinking like registration or nurses in the emergency department, there are also the patient transporters who are doing handoffs. So we need to remember that patients and their family members should be comfortable knowing where they're going in the hospital, what it's for, um, whether it's to a different unit or to, say, radiology. They need to be comfortable knowing um, that they can communicate with all of the providers. Thanks so much. 
And when we looked at this um, OCR voluntary resolution agreement that came about in May, we saw that it was actually the second, as we call it, VRA that pertains to disability discrimination in 2023. So both of the uh, resolution agreements in 2023 actually were from patients in ambulatory care settings rather than from inpatient or emergency department settings. So I'm wondering whether um, you could maybe talk a little bit that that first one that took place earlier this year, I thought was really an interesting one because it was a patient who was going for OBGYN care and her provider refused repeated requests to provide her with a sign language interpreter for a preoperative appointment. And she also alleged to the Office for Civil Rights that she was retaliated against because she had requested an interpreter because her appointment was canceled and her surgery was canceled and she was actually terminated by the provider as a patient. And when we read that one together, Natalie, I think that, you know, what the OCR's director said was really rather dramatic. Um, She said, federal civil rights laws are clear that healthcare providers must provide those who are deaf or hard of hearing with appropriate auxiliary aids and services, such as an ASL interpreter when requested. Providers are required to follow the law and request and provide care in a manner that is free from discrimination. In this matter, the the patient was terminated by the provider because she requested an accommodation. And according to the OCR director, she said, this is unacceptable and will not be tolerated. Ensuring that people with disabilities can access their care equally is critically important, and we call on providers around the country to follow the law. So, Natalie, in addition to all the other wonderful certifications that you have with respect to clinical coding and so forth, you are also certified in healthcare compliance. And I think, you know, I would be interested to hear your thoughts. And then we'll turn to Ron to get his thoughts about how non-discrimination protections should be incorporated into a healthcare organization's corporate compliance work plan. And then how do you take it from the work plan and operationalize it in your daily practice at your workplace? So Natalie, maybe if you want to comment a little bit on how do you get that into the compliance plan? Sure. I think this is a good topic to remind compliance professionals that although we don't typically have patient-facing jobs, this topic has a huge impact on both the care of patients and the organization's reputation. The hospital or healthcare facility can be a scary place with a lot of uncertainties, so it's imperative that all patients and their family members are comfortable knowing that they can get the appropriate care without discrimination. I think adding this to the compliance plan would be a great first step to, one, perform an analysis to where providers and organizations stand in providing such accommodations. It could start with interviews of the staff and do they have the appropriate equipment available? Have they ever been asked to provide anything? Is it documented anywhere so the next uh, person who's 
who is taking care of that patient understands that they'll need to provide an amplifier or any other accommodation. So I think the first step is to just take a look and see where you are. Thank you so much. And Ron, I'd be eager to get your recommendations, your thoughts about how safeguards can be incorporated into your compliance work plan. When we talked about this topic, I was so thrilled. So maybe if you can share with our listeners some of the things that you have incorporated into your organization's corporate compliance plan to make sure that patients do not experience discrimination. Well, uh, first and foremost is make sure that you have a collaborative effort when you're starting to review this information, much like what Natalie was saying. Ask questions, get groups together, get the different departments, make sure that everybody is aware of it, first of all, Two, and create the policies and procedures for that. I know um, you listen to your interpreters. They will tell you issues. Patients, you know, patients who are using these uh, aids, talk with them a little bit about it. You know, we had a patient came in from a local emergency department, were turned away because they didn't know they didn't have an interpreter for the language. So that was a bigger problem. And then we had to deal with it because we received the complaint and turned it back over. But it's it's those type of situations that we want to do. So that gets you that initial risk assessment, so to speak. And then you take that and then you start breaking it down as to what are the steps involved that need to make sure people are insured at one is all your printed material appropriate? Is it in the different languages? Is it in big print, small print? Do you have readers on your computers? Are your websites, you know, 1557 uh, compliant where the readers are there that it can pick up on all that and speak to that? So you have those. Is your EHR set up in such a way that it can record what are preferred communication methods for your um, uh, patients? And then do you have them available? So, uh, you know, following that and, and looking at that, I mean, we have about 15 different languages in our area. So we don't have all 15 different languages in-person interpreters. So how do you do multi-layers, right? Layer one, hire interpreters that can be useful, right? Second, have that service, a VRS or an audio system that they can plug into. We had one that was uh, utilizing tablets. It was great, but we had limited tablets. So we, we decided to do the next step. We had a process improvement, kind of a lean event with, with the people involved. Now every computer has a button. You click the button, you're into our service so that you can get the appropriate person on who can help interpret. It's integrated with our EHR. It's integrated with our phone systems. And then it's train, 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 right? It's, it's, it's from the initial orientation of new hires through the job role uh, training with competency sign-offs and then recompetencies down the road. And then quite frankly, as the compliance officer, it's really about our risk rounds, just observing, listening, seeing what's happening, making sure that people are doing that. Check the logs, you know, check the usage, do your audits. So those are just some, you know, fast and furious, shall we say, ways to incorporate it in. And then of course, have your policies and, and actually write it in as part of your risk rounding. Absolutely. That is so critically important. And I think, you know, as you're talking about all of the interactions that as a compliance officer, you need to be having, I call it sort of boots to the ground, if you will, with all of the folks across your organization and all of its sites. I think, you know, one of the things that all healthcare organizations, which it started before the end of the the COVID pandemic, but it's still happening. There has been significant staffing turnover in healthcare organizations, just incredible 
turnover. And so I was wondering, Ron, if you can maybe speak to as your health center orients new staff, how do you go about assuring that patient facing staff are educated about what the auxiliary aids and services are that you can provide and how to make those viable for your patients? So uh, the way we do it is on, on day one of orientation, we have the different departments that are meeting with uh, the new hires, so to speak. I'm one of them. I always go in and do the privacy component and compliance component. And I do speak to the different areas like the ADA, the language, the interpreters and, and on a higher level. Then after two days of orientation, they're pretty much tired of us, right? You know, So they want to get to their job. So we move into our mentors and into our, our supervisors. They take them under their wings. So we have mentors that they sit with and they go through it and they go through. We have a big old competency checklist. And part of that competency checklist is filling out the right paperwork, knowing what available aids are there. And then they go through all that with the mentors. They get competency and signed off. Supervisors are observing competency and signed off. We also have signage that's out in the reception areas that say, hey, if you need an interpreter in multiple languages in that, that ask at the front desk, we have no problems doing it. Training them on the different devices that we have. You know, uh, we ha the service that we have is an icon on the desktop. You push the button, boom, you're right in. It integrates in our telehealth platform. It connects, you got one screen that's got the person on it, the other screen. So, you know, one thing that we have found is uh, for uh, the American Sign Language, it works really well for the video components and audio components. But most of the other languages, they most of them uh, prefer just audio only. You know, they, 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 they don't have to have all that other video component. It's nice to have. Right. But, but it's not required. But for the American Sign Language, it is. I mean, you have to be able to see in order to interpret back and forth. And, and if I remember correctly, Ron, aren't you switching over to a new EHR system? Yes, we are. We're switching to a new one. So we're <laughs> right in the middle of it. You know, in fact, in seven weeks, we go live. So we're all doing our super user trainings and we're doing all that. And it's built in from the standpoint of PSPs, we call them our professional services. Mm -hmm. That's our frontline desk that get the phone calls, schedule the appointments, right as part of their questioning is preferred languages, preferred needs for communications. How do we, how do they want to be communicated? We have a text platform that we can type it in English. It'll translate into whatever language we need it to and send it out to the people so that they can get their text in, in the way they communicate. Now for American Sign Language, a little different. That doesn't work, but we do have the ability to work with TTY, VRS, things like that. Beautiful. You know, it's so critically important for a compliance program to make sure that patients are not experiencing uh, discrimination. As, you know, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations about monitoring and tracking any complaints or grievances that might come in. So in other words, say that I am hard of hearing and I feel like I have not been able to get accommodation. What would be the type of recommendation that you would offer to other compliance uh, officers about how to conduct that type of an internal investigation and document those types of complaints and what the outcomes are? Sure. Well, uh, first off, you got to get the complaint in. So you have to have a multi-system way for complaints to come in, whether it's a link on your, your webpage, a phone number that they can call, uh, 
emails, however, just so that they can get the information. And then once they get it in, it's one of those things when it comes to the investigation, think about it first. Take that pause. Now, we don't want these to drag on. We want it to get resolved as quickly as possible, but you don't want to rush it. So the first thing is, first, find out what the complaint is. List out the questions in your mind off the top of your head that you're going to feel will be ones that need to be addressed. But more importantly, get a hold of the person who had the complaint and just listen. Listen, see what's going on, see how they feel, get there, get there. You know, one of the questions I always love to ask is, how would you like to see this result? Get their ideas, because if you can incorporate that into the actual resolution and outcome, that makes it so much more meaningful for them, for everybody involved. But once you get your questions answered, you know, talking to the appropriate people, the person who filed the complaint, people involved in the complaint, which will might mean going into the record and finding out who actually talked with this person, who functioned with this person, who, who was the provider, and then talking with them about the whole event, getting all that data, compiling it, putting it into a report so it's all, and then summarizing that, and then coming down, you know, you have your root cause analysis, and then coming down and finding out your options for solutions, and then bringing it back to everybody involved so they can see it, so they know you've heard, you've listened, and then bring forth your solutions. Beautiful. And I think one of the things that I would add from my time as a corporate compliance officer at a health center is that type of investigation, we definitely treat it as a grievance, if you will, if there was ever an allegation of discrimination, whether it was because of disability or whether it was because of a patient had limited English proficiency. So that was information that we added to our compliance dashboard so that mm -hmm. we could track and trend that information. And I would report that information out to the board every month. That was something yeah. that as a federally qualified health center that our board was very very eager to know what the resolution would be if a grievance of that nature came into the organization. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. We, we, we call them sometimes different, unusual occurs, uh, 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 occurrences, things like that. We use that just due to the inflammatory nature of some words that people kind of really get stepped off on. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for those those thoughts. Really great to hear. And I'm thinking as we wrap up our conversation today, what I'd like to do now is to turn both to Natalie and Ron to offer your top two recommendations for safeguarding the rights of patients with disabilities from discrimination. How can healthcare organizations and provider offices remove unnecessary barriers and assure that appropriate auxiliary aids and services are made available. So Natalie, maybe if I can turn to you first, based off of your experience, um, what would be the top two recommendations that you would give to a provider practice or a healthcare organization that's really trying to look at how they deal with this? I would first understand where your organization stands in the ability to provide accommodations for its patients and gather a team to make any improvements if necessary. And then, as Ron said, keep training these staff members with the turnover in all of these different areas. We need to make sure that the staff is aware of these accommodations and how to provide them, um, because all it takes is one patient to mess it up. 
Thank you, Natalie. And Ron, please, um, we'd, we'd love to hear what your top two would be uh, if someone is coming in, maybe as a new compliance officer, and they come into an organization, and they see that there aren't policies and procedures or ways to really make sure that, that there is robust documentation. Sure. So, well, I mean, first, obviously, making sure that you do have the policies and procedures in place that that call that out. I mean, HRSA talks about it with their multicultural, also in their compliance manual, it's there. Uh, all the different organizations, 504, Social Security, you know, everybody has this listed out. But I would say probably the first thing that I would do after getting past that advisory group, people who have disabilities, all kinds Find different ways to, to meet, whether it's once a quarter, twice a year. How, what do they see as barriers? Do some simulations with them. Do simulations with your staff, with the advisory groups. So they can, so we can, you know, kind of like a trauma-informed, right? You know, how, how are they being in, uh, affected this way? And then, you know, obviously the vigilance after that. That's doing your audits, your log checks, your risk roundings, and things like that. And just as a side note, as a provider of care. You want to get informed consent from your patient. There's only one way to get informed consent from a patient is that they're informed. So health literacy, information, making sure they understand it. That's the only way you can do it. And then you become partners with that patient. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Again, I would like to thank you both Natalie and Ron, for sharing your insights today. We've reached the conclusion of our discussion about complying with federal requirements that prohibit discrimination on the basis of disability. On behalf of Natalie and myself, we thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. Also, we thank our guest, Dr. Ron Bosch, for his participation in today's podcast. We welcome listener questions and feedback about the ideas we've discussed in this episode, and we would welcome your suggestions for topics we should consider developing for future podcasts. Many thanks. Thanks.